All right. Matt Lewis is the chief AI officer at Anisio Medical. And today we're going to talk about the use of AI in medical affairs and how that can be useful to the eventual commercialization plan. Matt, welcome to CC Life Science. Thanks so much for having me, Chris. Appreciate it. So for context, tell us about what Anisio does broadly and then specifically what areas you're working in. Yeah, sure. So uh, Anisio is the world's largest uh, life sciences, communications, and commercialization firm. Uh, we work with all the leading groups that are out there in the life sciences space, like pharmaceuticals and biotechnology, medical devices, software as a medical device, what might be called digital therapeutics. And we help them uh, kind of interpret and interrogate their science to uh, tell the right story to different the stakeholders that they work with, whether it's clinicians or um, regulators, payers, patients. Um, anyone out there in the world that needs to kind of interpret the data and make it sing. I like that, make it sing. I also like um, what we're going to talk about today is the idea of using AI to help figure out what each of those stories is for all those different audiences. So tell us how AI is used to help companies make just decisions along the path to commercialization and what kinds of decisions are we talking about? Sure. So, I mean, First of all, the, the use of artificial intelligence in kind of scientific commercialization or in medical, which is the area that I focus on, has been uh, utilized for many, many years. I've been in the space for, I've been in, in medical for most of my career um, and uh, working in AI for almost about 15 years or so. And it, it really first started getting utilized uh, a while back uh, when people recognized that just the amount of content, the amount of scientific scientific information, whether it's through clinical research or through um, just published papers, uh, different information from patients or from uh, different understanding from consultants or different ways of understanding the customer. There's just so much data out there that it was just difficult for the average person that was responsible for uh, a given aspect of a strategic plan or trying to understand a little bit about kind of what the target should look like or what their endpoints should look should be there was just more data than any one person could kind of handle, if you will. And they started using different aspects of artificial intelligence to really uh, just understand what the big picture looks like um, and where some of the signals might be amongst all that noise that could be utilized in a, a going forward consideration. Uh, one of the ways that we use it uh, within Anisio is in what's termed lexicon analysis or scientific platform considerations where you might uh, say at an early stage of development, like in phase two, a couple of years before molecules actually approved for, for indication for registration, you might know, for example, the therapeutic area that you're in, you might know like the indication you're pursuing, but there might be a number of compounds that are already on the market. There might be some competitors, there might be you know, 10, 15, 20 years of existing science that precedes the introduction that you're looking to make a couple of years hence, if you will. So that could be 10, 20, 50, 100,000 articles in the given space, not to mention conference posters and abstracts, not to mention clinical trial reports and information from patients directly. And just to get through all that content in what might be a month-long project or a, a quarter-long project is more than anyone could possibly do. And just you'd spend your whole career just pouring through the little articles trying to figure out what's, what's relevant. So we er, earlier on, eight, nine, 10 years ago, we started using natural language processing, a division of AI, to try to just figure out from amongst all that content, what are some of the relevant terms or the concepts that are really interesting for our strategists and our scientists to pay more attention to, 
so that they could then use their limited time to say, okay, this might be really relevant for us to pay attention to, and then focus our discussion with clients and with groups on as we progress forward and make some recommendations. And later that became more of an interactive discussion, a heat map or a way of kind of understanding like, okay, well, if these are the things that are really kind of interesting that we want to pay attention to, then we can focus on those in the conversations that follow. So it's a way of kind of making the, the strategic work that much more impactful. It doesn't replace the work that people are doing. It really strengthens it. Yeah. So I was going to ask you about, you know, 10 to 15 years ago, what were, what was AI like? Because now, of course, I'm thinking of large language models, but you mentioned sure. NLP, which we've talked about a few times uh, in the last handful of years with Hans Kasperset. Um, talk a little bit more about that. I mean, I'm, I'm imagining these tens of thousands of documents that are what I would call unstructured data. Is that yep. fair? And yeah, pulling, definitely. Sure. pulling stuff out, what does it look like when you pull it out? Or wh- how do you tell it what to look for and, and focus on? Yeah, I mean, so you still have to have a, a great degree of subject matter expertise. It's, there's nothing that's autonomous and, you know, the, the platforms don't kind of run on their own. On the front end for the NLP type work that we're doing, we're still trying to understand within a given space, like what are the key terms or the vocabulary that might be useful to kind of consider on the back end. So say it's for, you know, osteoporosis, you're still feeding in things like bone quality and bone density and trabecular bone and other types of considerations that might be worthwhile. You're building this kind of like familiar set of things that the tool can look for, if you will. And you're really kind of giving it like the, the areas that it should focus on so that when it starts doing its work, it can do the categorization or the sorting into the, the areas that are relevant for the analyst or the strategist to look at kind of at the back end. So you need to understand on the front end what the space looks like at large so you can later understand kind of what actually comes out. If you don't have a sense of the, of the space on the front end, then it's like garbage in, garbage out. You won't be able to, to make sense of what comes back because you'll get like lots of sorting into categories that don't make any sense for the end product. You need to really understand the the, the context of, of what you're doing to be able to ask the right questions, if you will. Um, so you know that, that that's that's a lot of what it looked like. And you know, back in the earlier days, uh, there was really a, an abundance of different like natural language processing approaches, both you know data science approaches that teams would use within their own walls. There were partnered organizations like through IBM Watson or other partners that we would work with. And you know, there's a little bit of a kind of active area of research and trying to figure out which was the right platform for the right use case. And you know, even within life sciences, there wasn't like a preferred route. So it was difficult to try to figure out how do we kind of parse the right approach based upon what we're hearing. It's a different use case for, you know, lexicon, a different use case for medical or field insights, a different use case for Congresses. And a lot of it had to be done in-house with our data science team versus working with a third party because it just the, the technology wasn't robust enough to just take something off the shelf and throw it and kind of see what works. So we, we kind of learned over time as to kind of how to, how to make it, how to make it work. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about how, I mean, you've got all these papers, Congresses, whatever other content you can analyze to build a position for your therapy. So there, you mentioned endpoints and all those things. Talk about how the AI is used to craft the most effective narrative in a way that humans couldn't do without having access and then condensing all that information, I guess. 
Yeah, I mean, so I used to work on the pharma side of the kind of equation, if you will. Now I'm obviously on the consulting or you know, agency side, but I was on the pharma side for many years, over a decade. And back in the day in the pharma side, I'm not sure how things still go today, but I'm, back in the day, it used to be that when you had these conversations about kind of what your strategy should look like and what you should be saying, that you would ideate and architect, if you will, a little bit of a kind of a narrative, if you will, as to, to where you stood in the landscape and where you wanted to be when your molecule made it closer to the market, if you will. And it, it sometimes would be that you'd get into these conversations, these like workshops with a multidisciplinary group of stakeholders, folks that would come from biostatistics and from compliance and regulatory and commercial and legal and HR and finance and you know medical and R&D and all different functions. And people would get in the room and then have some evidence that say, well, this is where the studies are reading out. And then there'd be a lot of shouting. People would yell a lot. Uh, and then, you know, depending upon who had the loudest voice or, you know, who had the most senior position, like th those would kind of carry the day and there would be some agreement as to like what the course of action would be, because that's usually what happens in some of these discussions, right? And you have a, kind of a, a good kind of an honest kind of argument as to kind of what's in the best interest of the organization and which way it should go forward. And there was a lot of evidence, but sometimes the subjectivity and the qualitative nature of kind of what made sense to the organization kind of won the day, if you will. I think when we started moving into more of an evidence-centric, data-centric, AI-centric type of environment, those contributions are still there for sure, but they're kind of counterbalanced by more of an objective evidence-based approach where the evidence might suggest, like for a given narrative, it might be that you know there are three or four competitors that are really vocal about a particular area, maybe like tumor microenvironment, and like that's something that they own really well. And that the, the AI might suggest that you know, if you want to, to launch with a new molecule with an, a tumor type that is in the same area as those companies, that if you talk about tumor microenvironment, it might be that the, the stakeholders, the folks that are going to read those papers, that they might mistake you for one of those other companies because those other companies dominate the landscape with that narrative. And that might be okay. Maybe you want to be considered as like one of the leaders in the, in the space like those other organizations. Or maybe you want to instead go after something that might be considered more like white space or like a little bit of a blue ocean where there isn't as much of a, of a discussion on a topic that is important, but perhaps has been overlooked. So it's a, more of a strategic discussion as to kind of where those gaps might be in the broader environment. And it's, it's just challenging because in some of these categories, like in amino oncology or in some aspects of rare disease or in other areas, there's just so much literature. There's so many assets that a human just can't get through all of it in the time that's necessary. And if, if they don't get through all the evidence, what happens is they get into a workshop, there's 25 people yelling, and, they, and they, their evidence doesn't make it to the top. They don't necessarily be the, the thing that decides the day, so to speak. And then maybe a decision is made, but it may not be the best decision for the brand. So you know, sometimes having AI kind of there helps as a little bit of a kind of equilibrator, if you will, or equalizer. And it allows for more of a kind of honest discussion to take place as to what's really in the best interest of the narrative and of the science. I really like this. And I think people, even beyond those developing therapies for any product in life sciences, whether it's on the tool side or on the therapy side, first of all, I'm, I was sort of chuckling when you talk about 25 people in a room yelling. And I mean, I don't know if I've told this story on the podcast before. The most violent conversation I've ever seen in life science marketing was about the name of a system. Yeah. And 
it needed to be renamed because of an acquisition and conflicting, you know, confusing sort of thing. But man, did people get fired up about, you know, what it could and could not be with no data other than personal experience of everyone in the room, right? But talking about this and positioning, thinking, all right, let's say, as you say, uh, tumor microenvironment, you might say, here's four really strong competitors. Here's what they're doing. We think we can be in that space. Or we say, no, we don't want to be that. Here's an open space where we can get some traction, right? I mean, yeah. That's, yeah. And positioning is hard. That data sounds phenomenal to be able to really map out the position space and find your opening. Yeah, I mean, this is work we've been doing now for a long time, and it's 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 one of the most frequently requested things that we do across the organization. It's actually evolved somewhat recently uh, because of you know gender, because of the large language models, but also because of just how robust the technologies are becoming out in the space, and because the the general kind of comfort in using AI in medical and you know science broadly is just so much more you know pervasive, I guess now than it has been historically so whereas in the past what i mentioned to you would have been like a snapshot like a snapshot in time like maybe if the workshop was you know october 1st it's mid-september now when you and i were talking and that if we would have essentially done our historical research from like end of august through the previous five years maybe and then you go into workshop and it's already like a month old because it takes time to prepare the content and get ready for the workshop and all the collateral and get ready for the meeting now there's a way of also kind of juxtaposing on top of all that snapshot data, all the citation information, all the sentiment data, and all the kind of bag of words, next most likely words consideration. So, you know, if you, if you have a published paper in a particular area and someone referenced your paper, they cited your paper, we can now tell the people in the audience, hey, like your paper that was really important to the organization, this organization, a Mayo Clinic, cited it and they thought it was really great. Or there was this other group that cited and they thought it was horrible and the methodology was not what they thought it should be. And this patient population that they thought really needed drug was excluded. Have you ever thought about including that in a new study or new trial? So that there's so much more data and so much more evidence that can be raised up and considered now in these types of conversations that in the past we could have done that type of work. But even the, the gathering of that type of evidence would have been so manual and so kind of time intensive that now is, is really kind of easier and frictionless and really just allows for a lot of those conversations to take place. Yeah. You mentioned something there. You mentioned a couple of things and I can't remember the first one, but the one that stuck with me was the idea of, you know, a new trial, for example, or across even life science broader, the ability of AI to, um, because a lot of research is based on previous research, but, the use of AI to find gaps, things that haven't been investigated enough, for example, I yeah. think is pretty exciting for science broadly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this has always been a topic of interest to anyone that's in this like knowledge management, like research field, synthesis field, if you will. It used to be that um, you know companies for for a long time would try to, you know, of course, identify molecules that have been successful in the market and then try to figure out other potential uses for them. Like, for example, you know, if they have a, a drug that's you know, doing well in indication A, you know, could it be also used in indication B, either as close or, or far? And they'd ask us to go into the literature saying, hey, you know, we have this drug, it's approved for, you know, congestive heart failure. Do you think it have any other cardiovascular uses before we shelve it or before the, you know, patent gets to expiry? And 
you know, trying to find those kind of needles in the haystack in the literature historically was extremely difficult. People don't publish under the right kind of mesh terms, like in the, the subject headings within uh, within the scientific literature, the way you'd like them to. It would make it really easy to say, okay, yeah, here's an example of your drug and CHF that actually also works for hypertension. You just call it out quite quickly. So you'd have to do all these kind of roundabout searches to try to find something that actually is a signal when it really doesn't look like that. But now with a lot of the artificial intelligence considerations that are out there, there are easier ways to find associated evidence to, to raise up metadata, to look at similar authors that have commented on papers that are relevant and to find not just for drug repurposing purposes, I said purposes three times, but also um, agents and molecules that have been shelved so that now companies are starting to kind of go back to the archives and look at, you know, what's on in, on the shelves of the lab that, you know, they thought could have worked like in the seventies or the eighties or the nineties, but just never quite made it through clinical trials. And now maybe there, it actually could have worked and maybe the population wasn't studied to the right degree or the endpoint wasn't set appropriately, or there was some early literature, or maybe it just, you know, has a slight change. Like it's the left enantiomer and the right enantiomer is the one that they actually favor. It could actually be quite robust. So there's a lot of excitement now of trying to kind of dust off the old considerations and try them again anew and see what might work. I think that's really exciting given the challenge of how many drugs don't make it through a clinical trial and the massive inventory of drugs that have been approved for safety and efficacy in one area. If you think there are ways now to discover new indications that, you know, that would save a lot of headache, I think. Yeah. Talk about the kinds of data that are used to produce those insights. I mean, you mentioned all these papers, but also talking to thought leaders and customers, for mm -hmm. example. Sure, sure. So I think one of the big kind of areas of interest, uh, especially with the medical, is uh, related to the ability to understand and, and then kind of harness and leverage the insights that come from uh, medical it kind of encounters, if you will, from conversations between field medical teams like medical science liaisons or medical outcomes liaisons and or, or, uh, investigator science liaisons, folks that are talking more at the pipeline level and customers, which are typically either investigators or opinion leaders. And when you start those types of conversations, you're talking about people that are peer-to-peer are -peer conversations. They're all essentially doctor-level staff having conversations with other doctors, essentially, about the company's research, about the, its place in the, in the armamentarium, if you will. And typically, the conversations are a lot longer than, say, what sales reps would have. So maybe like 20, 30, 60 minutes sometimes. And, and they're capturing these conversations in a CRM or a CXM tool but sometimes the conversation depth is not as great as what you would otherwise kind of need to really have a, a full discussion. So from an insights conversation, it's, it's that kind of asset, the conversation between a, an MSL and an opinion leader. It's also conversations that occur at an advisory board of consultants and a, an MSL, if you will, or at a medical conference, a Congress, if you will, um, as well as say maybe market research or physicians calling a medical information, customer sender type of, of number. All that kind of voice of customer information can be harnessed and leveraged, similar to what I mentioned earlier with the NLP text work. There's a usually a, a kind of front end uh, vocabulary or, or ontology that's set up to try to identify what are the key terms or concepts or things that we really care about as an organization. And they tend to link to like the strategic goals that a business is trying to advance. So like if, if we say that you know, uh, someone is asking us about this particular area of mechanism of action or pathophysiology or disease or diagnosis, 
how does that track to the things we're trying to do that quarter or that year as an organization? And what is the alignment between like what we think we're going to hear and what we actually are hearing from the field, if you will? Um, and then you can use artificial intelligence to then both track the adherence, the fidelity between what's intended and what's asked, as well as to actually mine or kind of actually analyze this, the actual statements themselves for sentiment, for substance, and then to see whether or not some of the things that people are saying are actually actionable. Because you know, you'll have maybe, I mean, I was an MSL myself 20 some odd years ago. Maybe if I had 10 interactions a week, maybe one of them was really meaningful and the others were really interesting, but they weren't going to really change what we do from a planning perspective. And the one that was really meaningful, like that would need to get like carried up the chain, like to my boss, to the head of training, to the head of the MSL group. Maybe they'd say like, you know, there's a really fascinating conversation Matt had with you know, Dr. X at Columbia. And like, this needs to be something that we think about when we're doing our new training plan, where we're going to you know, think about a new study that we're yielding out or, you know, public relations activities we're doing in this area. So how, do, how does the organization kind of, uh, you know, flag up or signpost those really high level insights, if you will, so that they can both affect what the organization is doing with the strategic planning? And then also how do they close the loop and help the field understand that, hey, when you had that conversation, that was really important. That was impactful. That was something that really mattered. Whereas the other things you did that they were important too, but they weren't actionable insights. They were just like really interesting conversations you had. You did your job, if you will, but they didn't make it to the point of like actually changing what we do as a business. So it's important. Both those things are important that the, the business can benefit from the conversations, but also the individuals having the conversations know kind of what's great and what's like really interesting, if you will. Yeah. So there's a couple of things in there. I'm just curious about how this world works and maybe not 10 years ago, but maybe now, are we talking about the conversations between MSLs and KOLs being actually recorded in some way, or are we relying on the MSL taking really good notes? Yeah, it's probably more the latter. There aren't many organizations I'm aware of that allow for recording. Yeah. Um, although it, is, it is an interesting topic, though, because I think, you know, even with people that have amazing memories, and I have, I have a decent memory, my, you know, it does, has actually passed down uh, and my, my family, my youngest child has an amazing, amazing memory, kind of like my memory when I was a kid. Um, but you know, not everyone has as good a memory. And I think beyond the memory, there are the advantages of artificial intelligence at this point through, uh, say, speech to text are beyond just the, the actual direct recording of what's captured. Right. Because like, I think the best analogy is like the, the GPS analogy. Like, you know, if I don't know if you use Waze or Google Maps or something like that when you drive, I do, I always use Waze, but like beyond just knowing how to get from point A to point B, which is the original stated purpose of GPS, there are lots of other kind of a constellation of other things that AI provides to the person driving beyond just the ability to get from point A to point B. It'll tell you, for example, you know, is, you know, there construction on the road? Is there a hazard on the road? Is there a police officer down over there? Is there... You know, something like, is the road closed, you know, things that are not directly related to the trip itself, but are contextual intelligence that are worthwhile surfacing. And I think we are going to get to a point eventually with CRM systems, potentially with legal and compliance, where companies are going to encourage reporting at some future point, only because the, the contextual intelligence of capturing that contextual level of intelligence, it will be kind of incremental to what people can capture just in their heads and their brains. And it'll be useful for all involved, the, the person kind of 
talking, if you will, as so the person listening, to make sure that it's a faithful capture of what actually happened, as opposed to kind of a indirect capture by the human alone. But we're, we're not there yet. Right now, it is just a, a conversation. Someone tries to transcribe a bit of it and capture like in field notes, like into something like Viva or Steep Rock or Xevo or one of the other OCE, one of the other systems that exists and kind of captures what's there. And then typically there's a, a, an insights module that kind of is an add-on or additional consideration that kind of ingests the data from that CRM um, or potentially they can export the data from the CRM into a separate tool and then it's analyzed using artificial intelligence to then yield those insights that we just described earlier. Right. When you're using the ways analysis for context, I'm thinking about what you said about sentiment and how to really capture that would be the actual word somebody used, I would think, would be very helpful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's that's definitely a big part of what's coming. I think, you know, the new consideration in AI is around the actual words. But they're also thinking about, you know, the tone of you know people's voice, like which they might say one thing but they actually mean something else with kind of the, what the tone of what they're saying. And not everyone is astute enough to pick up on that. You know, they, they, they say one thing, but their tone is more like, I really want to hear more. I don't feel like I really understand this, but they're saying, yeah, I get it. I get it. But they really want more information or the, the reverse could be true too, where they say like, you know, you know, I, no, I'm, I, I'm not really sure that I know what you're talking about. And they really just want you to leave the room because they have a patient coming in or, you know, they have something else they have to do. So, you know, the, the ability for AI to kind of pick up on subtle emotional cues sentiment is really unparalleled. And I think there's going to be an interesting consideration there. And some of it might be that uh, it doesn't follow us into the conversations we have with our customers. It might be though, that it prepares us for those conversations that we have, you know, simulations or we have preparations in, in our offices, you know, with our managers or our trainers and then kind of get ready for that discussion. So that when we're actually in, in office or in call that we're more attuned to that type of kind of visibility, if you will. Yeah, from a training perspective, that's cool. Okay, so how does medical work uh, with uh, with groups like clinical development or marketing and commercial in the context of everything we've been talking about here? Yeah, I mean, I, I joined medical as a medical liaison uh, probably now 22 years ago. When I joined medical, medical's role for the most part was like supporting like LMR reviews, like, you know, doing PRC and the rest. And we had a small field-based medical science liaison team, but for the most part, it was like PRC review and, and the rest. I think, you know, the, it's interesting, McKinsey, the global consultancy, just put out their uh, white paper for the vision of 2030 medical affairs just last week. And in it, they, they firmly have medical affairs kind of as the third pillar within life sciences where R&D is kind of firmly established and commercial is firmly established, but medical is kind of the bridge between them, if you will. And I think this has always been a kind of long-term vision for the function, but it is much more of a reality now and moving into the next five years than, than it has been historically, both because of size, but also because more of the launches and more of the types of considerations that industry has at present are highly technical, highly specialized launches, and they start in medical. And medical has been doing some launches on their own or leading launches without commercial or at least with medical at, at the fore, if you will, almost as like the tip of the spear. And so, I mean, medical has always been a good partner to commercial or to R&D or to regulatory or to other functions. But I think in the in the weeks and months and days to come, you'll start seeing medical and R&D and commercial kind of join at the hip, so to speak. And there are those that, that will say that over the next three to five years, you'll see senior executives within industry coming from medical. Like you'll have a CEO at a major firm that was born in medical, if you will. I think that's realistic within the next couple of years. 
Um, but you know, I think that it's it's it makes sense given again the high science consideration of what medical does, the you know kind of interpretation of data, the implementation of science across the organization, and then the strong collaboration with experts and kind of the narrative that goes forward. Um, and AI is is a definitely part of that. I think the the vision for medical affairs in terms of the professional society that we support, maps and the rest is always that AI will kind of transform what medical is capable of doing um, and that we can help our partners do more of that and share their science out and be able to kind of improve the outcomes for patients and uh, other other stakeholders in an appropriate fashion. Nice. All right. Two final questions. I should have interrupted you at the beginning. Yeah. No PRC words. is the one I don't know. MLR, Medical Legal Review, but yeah. PRC is what? Promotional Review Committee, same thing. It's a, okay. um, I think a kind of a somewhat outmoded term at this point, but there there are still some groups that still see the kind of initial medical role as like being the medical voice on on Promotional Review Committee, um, but it, it's it's much more than that. And some medical organizations, you know, are so diverse now where you know they still play a role like that, but they you know, they have a field medical organization, they have a project based medical director organization, they have publications, they have medical information, they have field insights, they have operational excellence, medical excellence. It's a pretty, you know, kind of diverse team at this point. Yeah. And then when you talk about medical launching, what does that look like? I'm imagining, you know, starting a launch, maybe just pre-commercialization with thought leadership and so on, or is it something different? Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And I think it is one of these kind of areas of active discussion, if you will, where, you know, I think people would like to see in some of these areas, especially I think it's a lot, a lot of discussion where where the, the spaces are very um, technical or specialized, for example, like in a lot of the rare disease areas um, or like in amino oncology, for example, where the market's very kind of suffuse, if you will, um, where medical takes the lead. They're the, you know, the tip of the spear, but then they're quickly followed by commercial or followed by somewhere else. The initial consideration might be more like disease oriented or helping to kind of prepare for uh, something that, that quickly follows while specialty pharma pharmacy gets set up, if, if you will. Um, but, you know, it's, it is a little bit of a different consideration than having like a, a team of 10,000 sales reps that, you know, may have been historically the case with, you know, some of the, the larger uh, brands that have existed in the last decade. And the rest, we have a kind of a very focused medical team that's kind of supporting a launch and then followed on by a more of a specialty force that, that kind of you know, quickly follows it, if you will. But I, I, there aren't a lot of these you know, use cases that exist right now. I, I can think of a couple, but um, I think that it's more of a discussion point in terms of like where that would be appropriate and uh, you know, the, how, it, how it works when, when medical does kind of take the initiation, if you will. Nice. It seems to fit in with some of the conversations I've had on this podcast or Life Science Marketing Radio about beginning to tell your story long before uh, commercial approval and, and not waiting in the success of doing that versus not. Yeah, that's, that's for sure. I mean, I remember there was a, a number of conversations about this when the medical affairs professional society first launched back, you know, six, seven years ago that, you know, waiting that, that, that was a typical thing people would do say like 18, 12 months out from launch, they would start kind of architecting the narrative and then it would shift to like early phase three. Then it would shift to late phase two. That, then we have some of these conversations with teams that are in late phase one, where they're, you know, they have an asset, they have a sense that it's probably going to proceed, and they're, they're already starting to think about things like what's their publication plan, what's their communications plan, what is, you know, what is likely going to be the competitive intelligence situation broadly, and really starting to think about you know what decisions they make 
not just for you know the the asset itself, but especially in some of these organizations where they might already have a molecule on the market and they don't want to publish something in late phase one or early phase two that might either cannibalize an existing molecule or you know prevent themselves from saying something about their own molecule later on as they learn more about its data. So it's kind of like you know how do they trade one off against the other? They want to you know kind of protect the current asset, but they don't want to you know kind of fight with themselves, if you will. So it's it's important to kind of think about the portfolio sometimes as opposed to just the individual molecule. Yeah, great point. Matt Lewis, this has been fantastic. I really appreciate you taking the time with me today. I definitely learned a lot. I'm sure the people listening did as well. So thanks very much. Yeah, Chris, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And thanks so much to the audience for listening. Yeah, my pleasure. Bye.